You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey folks, welcome to a special bonus segment of The Projection Booth. On our episode about The Brood, I spoke to Stephen Pissett about his incredible midnight monogram about The Brood. Stephen Pissett has also been involved in comics for many, many years, and I had to take the opportunity to talk to him about that. So I wanted to break that out and put that out as a special bonus. So enjoy this first part of our interview, and you can hear the rest on our episode all about The Brood. How did you get into the comic book business? Well, I was always a weird kid and, and you know, born in 55 and wanting to be a cartoonist, you know, growing up in northern Vermont, a little dinky town called Duxbury uh, was a pretty eccentric thing to aspire to. You know, I might as well have told my parents I, you know, wanted to live 20,000 leagues under the sea or something. I mean, it completely made no sense. But I stuck to it. And uh, when I was... Getting toward the end of my high school, uh, actually it was after high school graduation. I graduated in 73. You know, I was in that kind of rootless phase that uh, most of us in our 20s find ourselves in. You know, what do I want to do? What, what do I want to be? You know, um, and uh, there was a tragic thing that happened. One of my best friends committed suicide. And that really pushed me to really decide what I wanted to do. And uh, he had been going – I took a year off between high school and college, and and uh, my friend had gone to Boston uh, to, to university to study filmmaking. And I don't know what happened there, and I don't know what precipitated uh, what happened, but uh, the fact that he had pursued his passion, he and I had been making you know our own amateur underground 8-millimeter Super 8 movies um, all through high school – uh, collaboratively and and solo, you know, that really pushed me to to get serious about what I wanted to do. And and it was a hard thing because my family had a, a family business. We owned a grocery store, the Sets Market. My dad had it in his head that I was going to take over the family business. So for me to buck that, you know, for me to say, no, I, I want to be a cartoonist uh, was a real uh, point of friction and, and some conflict. Uh, but I really stuck to it. And uh, I think it also came about because I'd done a lot of theater in high school. You know, I was one of those kids that did performance in high school and I was in the the school musicals every year and everything. Much as I loved the theater, there was no way I was going to be able to convince anybody to do something I ever wrote. You know, the mobilization of money and energy and people was clearly something beyond my reach. And I had already hit the same wall with filmmaking. Um, uh, In a lot of ways, cinema is my first love, even though I've been drawing since age four. So the process of drawing was something I loved. But uh, the act of storytelling through drawings uh, really became uh, an urgent thing for me because of the frustrations of trying to make film. We didn't have any of the kind of video equipment that exists today at all. You know, we had a silent eight millimeter camera. And when we could afford it, we had a silent 
super eight millimeter camera and you would shoot whatever it was you were shooting and then you would mail it to Eastman Kodak and have to wait a week before you even saw whether it was visible. <laughs> and I had tried to make movies and again, hit that same wall that I had with theater, you know, like how do you convince people to show up and do your thing with comics? All I needed was a piece of paper and to perfect a skill set. And I was pretty confident that I could. I don't know where that confidence came from, but it did exist. I spent two years at Johnson State College, uh, which no longer exists. It's now part of the Northeast College. I believe it's called Northeast College um, base. They, they, they sold or were purchased uh, one or two years ago. But Johnson is where I went for two years. Again, I hit walls, you know, Mike. I mean, I was a freshman in a really tiny Vermont college. I was paying my own way from what I had saved working all through junior high and high school. Uh, and I couldn't get into the art programs because such a small school, seniors, of course, get priority uh, choice of classes. And I ended up back in theater <laughs> because those were the only classes available to me. And theater always needs warm bodies. So I pursued lighting and theatrical design. I worked on, on building sets, uh, but I really fell in love with lighting. I kept pushing and trying to get what I was looking for as an artist. I ended up being there two years. I managed to convince the head of the art department to allow me to do independent studies in comics work. And I had a really uh, close friend I'm still friends with. His name is Tim Varick. He lives out in New Mexico now, but Tim at the time heralded from Bennington, Vermont. And Tim had seen my sketchbooks. I kept sketchbooks and I was always drawing, you know, narrative comics in my sketchbooks. There were more narrative comic pages than there were individual drawings of, of you know, monsters, which I still love to draw. And Tim was impressed enough to say, uh, if you want to do a comic, I'll pay the printing bill. And a printing bill at that time, Mike, was uh, for $200, which Tim ponied up. We could get 200 copies of a magazine-sized black-and-white comic with three-color cover, uh, black plate, red plate, and yellow plate. And I hand-drew all the separations. And uh, I had a few friends that also loved comics. Mark Whitcomb, whose nickname was Sparky. Uh, he's no longer with us, sadly. And Jack Vanuker, who happily is still with us. And Jack and Mark and a few of my other friends you know, we're very supportive to the point where they contributed a couple of half-page comics, and Sparky and I collaborated on a one-page comic. But I'd also met an upperclassman named Steve Perry, who had been at Johnson already one or two years before I got there. And despite the fact I was a lowly freshman, Steve was impressed with my work enough that he scripted a comic story called Not Yeti, which was a joke to us, you know. <laughs> Are you ready? Not yet. Well, we did Not Yeti. It was a great script that Steve wrote, and um, I drew the entire thing, and he was very much a fan of Marvel comics at the time, and this is during the era when Marvel was doing comics like War of the Worlds, Kill Raven, that Craig Russell did a lot of the artwork for, and Don McGregor, was working with um, artist Billy Graham on Jungle Action with the Black Panther um, series. And Doug Mensch and Paul Galassi were doing Master of Kung Fu. And these were the comics that were exciting to Steve at the time. What excited me were the undergrounds. You know, what made me want to draw comics were underground comics. 
So it was a real clash in some ways of sensibilities. Like I, I read and enjoyed the Marvel comics, but to me they were really weak tea compared to the underground comics that, that I loved so much. But it meant that we were both pushing each other, and it turned out to be a pretty fruitful collaboration. And doing that comic, which Tim Varick uh, had paid for, became my portfolio piece when Steve Perry pulled me aside in his apartment one afternoon and very seriously and somberly, Steve was always serious and somber, said to me, you're wasting your time here. This is where you need to be. And he, uh, he, was, a, he was the first comic fan I'd ever met. The first time I'd ever seen anybody with long white boxes, with comic books in bags, <laughs> you know, I, that, that was alien to me. And he subscribed to the Comic Buyer's Guide, which was a weekly tabloid format uh, fan publication. And there was a column called Beautiful Balloons. And they had, uh, as I recall, a half page or a full page article about this new school that was going to open in Dover, New Jersey, that Joe Kubert was going to oversee. It was Joe's school. And I was a huge fan of Joe's work. I had grown up reading uh, Enemy Ace and, you know, later on Tarzan. And Steve convinced me to apply. I, I don't think I would have applied without the encouragement of Steve Perry and Jack Vanuker. I don't think I had would have had the confidence. Going to Kubert School, getting out of Vermont, being in New Jersey, being a member of the first ever class at the Kubert School. We started in fall of 76 and graduated spring of 78. Um, that that was my entree into uh, the comic book uh, industry in North America, which was almost entirely based in New York at that time. And it all went from there. How did you get involved with Alan Moore and the uh, Swamp Thing? Oh, that was a lot later. Um, I, I won't run you through the whole gauntlet, but I ended up working for almost every publisher except DC. We later found out through uh, the late great Len Wein that Kubert School students were kind of being blackballed. Like nobody was going to let us in at DC. There was some kind of axe to grind oddly enough, be, between the then current DC management and Joe Huber. I don't know what it was about. I have never gotten any introspection, and I certainly have never seen any factual documentation of what it was about. But they would allow us to schedule interviews. We would go up with our portfolio. When I say we, you know, individually, that would be myself, Tom Yates, Rick Veach, John Tottleben. You know, we were all students at Joe's school. And we just could not get our foot in the door. The only work that we had through D.C. is uh, Joe and Muriel Kubert had a work study program at the school where if you were on top of your assignments well enough and if you were capable of doing the work, uh, you could work on freelance jobs that Joe had picked up for the school. And Joe was packaging all kinds of stuff. You know, we worked on those Heroes World catalogs that everybody is nostalgic about these days. Those Heroes World was a New Jersey uh, retailer slash distributor that sold all those superhero tchotchkes. We, we would do the paste up and mechanicals and a lot of drawing for those catalogs. And we also did backup material for Joe's comic book, Sergeant Rock. Since he was the editor of Sergeant Rock at DC, Joe uh, had total control over cover to cover what was in the book. And a lot of us got our foot in the door doing um, battle albums, which were single page or double page spreads factually based of some aspect of, you know, military life or, or wartime history. Some of us got to do backup stories. I did quite a number of them. 
but we just couldn't get any work from DC. I ended up, I, I was already landing work while I was a student, Mike. I, my, one of my first sales was to heavy metal. I was one of the first Americans to land work in heavy metal. I was the first of the Cubert School students to land work with Marvel. An editor named Rick Marshall, uh, who's still with us. Rick Marshall is on uh, Facebook. Uh, Rick was an editor uh, at the time of Marvel's magazine line. That's when they were doing the Color Hulk comic in magazine form and the black and white magazines like Marvel Preview and Bizarre Adventures. Uh, so I was working for them and also for Scholastic magazines. I, I was landing a lot of freelance uh, gigs, but I couldn't get in at D.C. And it was finally uh, Len Wein who broke the logjam and uh, began giving work to Tom Yates. I have no idea, again, what went on behind the scenes. I don't know if Len's widow, Christine Villata, might know some of the backstory of what was going on there. We never asked. We were never told. Uh, but Tom Yates began to land freelance work with D.C., and, and that led to Len Wein offering Tom Yates the art job, the full art job, pencils and inks, on their revival of Swamp Thing, which was going to be tied into the release of the Wes Craven film that Avco Embassy released. Uh, and that would have been, what, 1982, I think, 1981. And uh, so Tom got the gig. And right from the start, I mean, penciling and inking a monthly or a bi-monthly comic is a full-time job. I mean, that's a lot of work. And it also means that you can't take other freelance work. Uh, so right from issue two, um, Tom was uh, soliciting for or accepting help from uh, fellow Kubert School graduates and classmates. Um, I think John Toddleben and Rick Beach were two of the first of uh, Tom's circle to pitch in on issues of uh, Saga of the Swamp Thing. Others who lived locally, like Tom Mandrake and Jan Dersima, uh, Ron Randall, you know, there was a whole clutch of, of us misfit Cubert school <laughs> uh, uh, rabble out there. And uh, I pitched in, I think I did layouts on Saga of the Swamp Thing number eight. Tom asked me to do it because it was a whole issue set on an island where these uh, Vietnam vets were, were able to project realities and... Um, the writer on the book, Marty Pasco, had had sort of revolved it around King Kong and One Million BC. And Tom knew I loved those dinosaur movies. Uh, so I laid out Saga of the Swamp Thing number eight. And then I later worked on, I think, number 13, Mike. It was um, a golem issue. Uh, there was a uh, two-issue arc with a golem. And Tom wasn't happy. I mean, Tom's real – we all had our own – you know, when you're a cartoonist, you have to be obsessed to do the work because there's just not enough money in it. <laughs> You know, if you're in it for the money, if you, if you if your dream is to be the next Todd McFarland or Rob Liefeld, um, forget it. You know, either do it for the love, and if you're lucky, you'll you'll um, end up carving out a niche and a, a real livelihood for yourself. But you got to do it for the love. And Tom's love was venture comics. Um, Tom Yates is the artist right now on Prince Valiant, which uh, Mark Schultz is right, and that's like the perfect fit. And Tom. Fortunately, has gotten to work on almost every major uh, 20th century pop adventure icon that he dreamed of working on in comics. And he's ended up doing a run on Zorro that Don McGregor scripted uh, as a comic strip. He's ended up working on um, Western comics, uh, Zane Grey, uh, and so on. He's ended up doing a lot of 
uh, Greek and Roman mythology projects and graphic novel form for smaller publishers. Um, he did Tarzan and Tarzan and Edgar Rice Burroughs is like, that's the godhead to Tim, to Tom Yates. <laughs> you know, the, the Tarzan of the Apes is this all time favorite uh, character. We used to call Tom Korak, son of Tarzan for your listeners who don't know who Korak is. Tom wanted to do adventure comics and Swamp Thing is not an adventure comic. You know, Swamp Thing is a monster comic. And, uh, he was really feeling frustrated. This isn't what he had signed on for. Um, so Tom uh, convinced John Toddleman and I that we should audition for the book. He let Len Wein know that, you know, he was going to work on the book up to a certain point and he was going to step away. And Tom recommended John Toddleman and I as a team. Uh, and the way we landed the book is Tim Truman, uh, another Kubert School classmate and graduate. Uh, Tim was working with TSR the uh, founding company of Dungeons and Dragons. And they were going to do a project where they wanted to do a line of uh, high quality plastic figurines. Um, and Tim convinced them that he had the chops and he had the amigos to put together a sweatshop. And my memory is it was like a two week gig. I could be wrong, but I don't think it was longer than two weeks. And uh, a bunch of us um, moved in to a hotel in, in uh, New Jersey that was in driving distance of Lake Hopatcong and in driving distance of Dover, New Jersey, where the Kubert School was. Um, and we worked uh, eight hours a day uh, in the hotel room that Tim had rented as the sweatshop. And then we had our own rooms. And after hours, John Toddleman and I would sit down and jam on these sample pages for Swamp Thing. And we weren't sure what Len was looking for, but John Toddleman, out of all of us, John Toddleman is the one who loved Swamp Thing as a character. And John Toddleman is the one who was devoted to the work of Bernie Wrightson. Um, and John was a really classically trained painter and illustrator. Uh, he also had a deep love for Franklin Booth, one of the great pen and ink artists, uh, and Virgil Finley. So John was the one who had a lot of ideas about where he wanted to go with Swamp Thing. I'm a horror junkie, as you know, Mike. I imagine that's why you wanted to talk to me. So I saw Swamp Thing as the potential of what I had dreamed of, which was to resurrect horror comics. I mean, that was my life goal, was to bring back horror comics in mainstream comics, but to bring them into the 1980s, which sounds really archaic now. But, you know, in 1982, that was a progressive thing to want to do. <laughs> And uh, Swamp Thing was what we were going for. And so John and I didn't know what Len was looking for. So we jammed on two different sets of audition pages. We did a set where I penciled and John inked. And we did a set where John penciled and I inked. Um, and we also did some full page character portraits of characters like I really wanted the demon. You know, I really wanted to bring Jack Kirby's The Demon, Etragon, The Demon, into the book. They hadn't done that yet. So we did a full page portrait of The Demon. And we did that uh, strange elephantine alien that Bernie Wrightson had uh, created for one of the later issues of Swamp Thing that uh, Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson had done in the 70s. And we did a portrait of Arcane. And I had this crazy idea of Arcane being in an exoskeleton, like a giant spider body. And that's what we did as the portrait. And Len, anyway, loved it all. And uh, he looked at our samples and he said, right, Steve's penciling, John's inking. And at that time, that was the right call. John had much more supple 
and beautiful to the eye uh, inks. Mine were very spastic and a lot of raw energy there. And, and it wasn't as seductive. It wasn't as beautiful as John's um, pen, brush, and ink work. But I had the stronger storytelling chops. And I also had, the at that time, a stronger sense of page design and the flow of page to page, panel to panel, and the unit of the page as a storytelling unit. Um, John was a fast learner. And by the time we were done with Swamp Thing and John moved on solo to collaborating on uh, Miracle Man, Marvel Man with Alan Moore, you know, John took it to the, into a whole new level. Um, but when we were starting on Swamp Thing, you know, that was the team Len appointed us as, and it worked really well. And you asked about how we ended up working with Alan. The writer was Marty Pasco. Uh, Marty Pasco had been working at DC for quite a number of years. In fact, I had been reading some of Marty's comics when I was a student at Johnson State College. I remember really enjoying his run on Dr. Fate um, earlier in the, the late 70s. Um, and Marty was starting to get more lucrative work and more demanding work from Saturday morning animation. Um, it's almost unknown to your listeners today, you know, that there used to be an American animation industry in California. Um, but there was, there was a really vital animation industry in California. They weren't shipping all the work out to Korea and Asia, uh, the way that they really began to do with shows like the Simpsons and so on. Um, and Saturday morning cartoons was big business and Marty, was landing more and more script work. And at some point he let Len Wein know he was going to be leaving Swamp Thing. He just couldn't stay on top of the deadlines. Len went fishing. Like, who was he going to find to write the book? He had no desire to write the book at the time. Len was the editor of a number of books at DC. And Len had the idea of reaching out across the pond. And uh, he called John Toddleman and I in the same morning. And uh, the call I got from Len was, well, uh, Steve, we've got a new writer you're going to be working with. You've never heard of him, and his name is Alan Moore. And I almost screamed on the phone. I was like, Alan Moore, you're kidding. <laughs> and Len was like, you've heard of him? And we had been buying, yeah, we had been buying Warrior magazine since 1982. That comic shop we had done catalogs for, Heroes World, had been importing Warrior and we were buying, I still have my full set of issues that I bought at Heroes World as they came out. And Alan was doing Marvel Man and V for Vendetta. Um, and V for Vendetta, of course, isn't Alan's alone. It's, you know, Alan Moore and David Lloyd's V for Vendetta. And um, that stuff was brilliant. There was nothing like it in American comics. And there had been nothing like it in American comics. And I can honestly say, Mike, it was the first mainstream work I had read that excited me as much as the underground comics had back in the late 60s, early 70s. So when Len told us we were going to get to work with Alan, I mean, that was just like, holy shit, we were happy. And then Len called John. It was doubly disappointed because John, of course, knew who Alan was, too. We'd been trading issues around and John had been reading Warrior as well. And that's how we ended up with Alan. You know, Alan was the new writer on the book. This is before the Internet, so the only way to contact one another was via the mail. And we began to exchange voluminous letters and, you know, uh, photocopies of pages out of our sketchbooks and so on. And it right from the get go was this real strong uh, chemistry between uh, not just Alan John and myself, but also Rick Beach, um, because uh, when I got the first Alan Moore script, I called Rick on the phone 
and said, you got to read this. Because what Alan had written in what became Swamp Thing 21, the anatomy lesson, was exactly what Rick Beach and I had been talking about comics being able to do, but we couldn't get there ourselves. We didn't have the writing chops, and Alan did. While all this is going on, you originally wanted to get into film. How are you kind of expressing that interest, or are you even able to, other than perhaps going to the movies? This has been a really strange year. From the age of 16, when I got my license, until March of this year, I went to the movies every week, many times a week, all my life. You know, once I had a license at age 16, I'm now 65. So that's what, almost 50 years. And I went to the movies every week. That's been the hardest habit. That and popcorn have been the two hardest habits to give up. (laughs) I don't care about going out and mingling with people. Um, I had already been channeling my love of film into my comics work. And that started when I was at Johnson State College. I mentioned to you that I've been doing um, theater work at Johnson And uh, a guy named Dick Emerson, Richard Emerson, was the head of the theater department. And uh, Dick was a uh, professional theater tech. I mean, he was working in New York City with, you know, the big outfits. He was the tech for Joffrey Ballet and so on. I mean, Dick was the real deal. And he would summer in New York City and winter in Vermont. And he was the head of the theater department. And I took his class on tech theater, lighting and set design. And our assigned textbook was the uh, McCandless Theory of Lighting. And I read the book and I was blown away because this was the theory, the aesthetic of color and light that was central to Mario Bava's body of work. And I'm one of those weird cats that had fallen in love with Mario Bava's work back in the 60s before anybody gave a shit about Mario Bava. And um I would seek out his films everywhere and anywhere. And this is when you could only see a movie either in a theater or at a drive-in or on television. It was really hard to see Bob's work. The other aspect of the McCandless theory of color and light that made sense to me in terms of comics is it was also the aesthetic of color and light that Richard Corbin was using in his cutting-edge color comics that he was doing in some of the undergrounds, including his own underground titles like Fantagore. And it was also central to the kind of color work Corbin became renowned for that he was doing as insert sections in the Warren horror newsstand magazines, Creepy, Eerie, and Vampirilla. So Dick Emerson hands me this book. It's an assigned reading. And I devoured it because it made sense of my all-time favorite filmmaker, Mario Bava, and one of my favorite cartoonists, Richard Corbin. Suddenly their color work made sense. And I began to incorporate uh, the aesthetics of that kind of stage lighting and color theory to my own artwork. And a lot of the artwork I was doing when I was at Johnson, before I went to Kubert School, I was showing movies every week on the campus. I got control of the student council money. (laughs) my first semester because I realized they had this huge pool of money that was assigned to show films on the campus. And the people that were in charge of the film council on Johnson state college were only showing like, I don't know, one movie a month. It was stupid. And so what I did is once I, you know, managed to finagle my way into it, I was showing two to three movies a week on campus, 
you know, because there was so much money to work with. I ended up doing a Sergio Leone retrospective, my second favorite filmmaker of all time. I did an unofficial Mario Bava retrospective, which I believe was the first in America that we were showing Bava films almost every other weekend on the campus because a lot of them were available really cheap for 16 millimeter rental. And when I say cheap, Mike, I mean $10 to rent and show the movie, as opposed to when we brought in 2001 A Space Odyssey, you know, that was an expensive film to rent. It was like, a, you know, a $200 rental. We needed anamorphic lenses for the projectors in Dibden Theater, which was our primary theater on the campus. This is how my love of cinema folded into my comics work, okay? By the time I got to Kubert School, I had already begun sort of formulating, like, how can I do in comics what the filmmakers I love do on the screen? And if you look at my early comics work, you'll see um, certain elements from Baba's work and from Leone's work popping up whenever I could get it into my comics that I was drawing, uh, you know, for assignments and especially my pro work. And I also was really passionately in love with the films of Nicholas Roeg. Performance was Roeg's first film. He co-directed it with Donald Kamel. I saw it in 1971 when I was 16, and it blew the top of my head off. It was my all-time favorite movie for a number of years. And everything he did after that, Walkabout, Don't Look Now, The Man Who Fell to Earth, Bad Timing, Eureka. I mean, there's this stream of films in the 70s that Nicholas Roeg directed, and every one of them reinvents how to tell a story. And I was aching to figure out how to bring the kinetics of Nicholas Roeg's uh, filmmaking to comics. And that script that Alan Moore wrote for the anatomy lesson was exactly that. And it turned out Alan loved Nick Roeg's films. <laughs> Alan and I were both on the same page in terms of how do we reinvent as best we can what's possible in a mainstream comic by adopting the, the, some of the um, storytelling techniques that we found most exciting in the work of filmmakers like Roig. So by 83, 84, you know, my, my first two years on Swamp Thing, I was well into trying to up my game on every issue of Swamp Thing in terms of, you know, how, how do I do the best comics possible, but incorporate what aspects of, of my favorite uh, cinema uh, was applicable to the comic page because they're very different art forms. I wasn't trying to make movies and comics and I completely reject that whole premise of comics being a perfect storyboard for films or TV series because they're different media altogether. But there are crossover points. And if you are in any way familiar with Nicholas Roig's work, you know, like if any of your listeners are curious about it, like Watch Don't Look Now. It's available in a beautiful Criterion edition. And then reread, say, the first four issues of Swamp Thing that, you know, Alan Moore, uh, Rick Veach, myself, and John Tottleman jammed on. And you will see exactly what I'm talking about.
Sacred and 